You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. And if you're not a member, consider joining. Members get extra episodes just for Patreon subscribers and all our episodes ad-free. Membership starts at just $2 a month. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl for more info. And as always, thanks for listening. This time, Severus took it personally. They sent the centurion to tell you. He stands on your doorstep, his plumed helmet under his arm, his hair chopped short, his jaw set in stone. You've been called to join Diocletian's army, he says, handing you the scroll. You're to report in the morning. You've been expecting this. The emperor's decree is only a few months old, but you've already seen your brother and friends called up and sent to the ends of the empire. You've known all this time they would come for you. It's a hot summer day. Insects buzz in the tall grass. Behind the centurion, your olive trees lift their leaves to the sky. The centurion's escort of men slouches on their horses. You turn back to him and give him a wordless nod. No point in arguing. That would only get you beaten up and dragged back to the fort. No time to bid your family goodbye. No time to formulate a plan. Only when he rides off do you unroll the scroll and read your orders. Twenty-five years, a lifetime, and they're sending you to the wall all the way up north in Caledonia, the wall at the end of the world. You lower the scroll and cast your eyes over the olive trees, the rolling hills, this little kingdom you've built. It's your family's olive farm, your father's and his before him. For decades, you've clung to this sliver of Italy's richest farmland. The olives that grow in the soil taste like no other, Senators and senators' sons will pay ridiculous prices for an amphora of your finest olive oil. By this grace, you've been able to hang on, just barely. When the rich were devouring the land all around you, rolling it up into latifundias, empires built on the backs of the enslaved, and casting your neighbors into poverty, you managed to hang on. Through drought and plague, through poverty and privation, through a dozen different emperors and all the violence and upheaval that followed, you fought off the wolves at the door, marauders and wealthy buyers and tax farmers who'd have taken all you have. But this, this conscription could be the thing that ruins you. 
Later, you call your wife and daughters around the kitchen table and you explain the situation. 25 years, the span of your lifetime, paced away at the wall at the end of the world, amidst ice and barbarians and utterly pointless wars, in a frigid waste as far off as the moon, while they stay behind, alone. They're strong women, made stronger by this land, but you know they can never hold this place themselves. There might be a chance if you marry your eldest daughter. Marry her off quick, train up her husband before your deployment, and have him bring his friends and brothers. Your eldest is 14, a tall, strong girl, as stubborn as you are, a genius with the books, old enough to be married by the standards of your neighbors, but you'd hope to give her time, more years to grow out of girlhood, perhaps even to make the choice herself. Your other two daughters are 10 and 8, far too young even to think of such things, too young to defend a farm with rake or stave or whatever they can snatch up, though they might have to. It's your wife who suggests it. She tells you, in whispers, what her cousin did when it was his turn to be called. It's a gruesome solution, but the more she tells you, the more you can see it's the only choice you have. Better this than to lose all you've built. Better this than your family cast into poverty, your girls married before their time. Let us do this, you say. Quickly, before you can change your mind, you tell your wife to grip your hand tight and your eldest daughter to fetch the sharpest knife. Your wife grips your wrist and presses it hard to the table. She's almost as strong as you, salt of the earth, broad-hipped with the widest of smiles. Now she's not smiling. Her jaw is set as determined as you. You spread your fingers, your thumb as far wide as it will go, and you look to your eldest daughter. She's a good girl, a strong girl, quick with a knife. She'll make a good wife someday, but not yet. By all the gods, not yet. You show her where to position the knife, just so, right at the joint. You grit your teeth, and you tell her, make it quick. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. Oh, that was gory, Jenny. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. You asked me to do it to you, and I did it to you. <laughs> We're going to explain this all to you and that whole scene will make sense, but no spoilers yet. It's going to make sense in a minute. We're going to get to it. It's a little bit of a throwaway in here and we wanted to just blow it up. It's a small little bit in history that actually is so fascinating to explode and look at the human and the practical consequences of what was happening. We're so uplifting this season. It's just so cheery. So in our last two episodes, we told you all about how Hadrian's Wall was built explored the strange mysteries built into its construction, and then took a deep dive into who built the wall and everyday life up there. Now, we're going to talk about what became of the wall and those who lived there after Hadrian's death. Hadrian never saw his wall completed with his own eyes. He died in 138 AD, about 10 years after the wall was finished. The man who took his place was Antoninus Pius. Antoninus Pius was born in 89 AD. He was from an ancient, very respected, and high-ranking senatorial plebeian family. His father served as consul the year he was born, and his grandfather was a senator. His family had bet on Vespasian in the year of the four emperors, which was very lucky. Antoninus Pius's father died the year he was born, and Antoninus grew up in the household of his grandfather, a respected senator and friend of Pliny the Younger. Antoninus served as consul himself in 120 AD. He was 31 and caught the attention of Emperor Hadrian, who chose him to serve as proconsul. 
Kind of like a governor of Italy and then Asia. He caught the eye. I don't know that Hadrian and Antoninus Pius were boning, but I, I don't know that they weren't boning. Yeah, I mean, history doesn't tell us, so fan fiction. There's all this, like, fun, passive-aggressive sexual tension in the relationship between Hadrian and Trajan, which I don't necessarily see here, but that doesn't mean it wasn't there. No, it doesn't mean it wasn't there. I mean, Hadrian got up to a lot of things. I feel like our default is probably if you're questioning whether somebody was boning or not, they were boning. That is our default. I mean, both of us come from a base that quite likes a bit of romance. We just assumed that everybody back then was boning. I don't know. That could be wrong, but it's a fun way to look at the ancient history. <laughs> if Suetonius tells us anything, it's that everyone's boning, particularly if they were related. Especially if they were related. So Hadrian was so impressed with Antoninus Pius's performance that he adopted Antoninus and made him heir to the throne. So he did this on February 25th, 138 AD, and this was just a little bit less than five months before his own death in July of that year. We have very few records of Antoninus Pius's reign. Cassius Dio was said to have written a biography, but it's been lost. There is a biography of Antoninus Pius in the Historia Augusta, which we've talked about how it's not that trustworthy, but maybe it is because maybe we wrote it. I don't know. Maybe we also built Hadrian's Wall. Oh, yeah. Let's be honest. It's you being like, it needs to be perfectly this bit. And it's me being like, eh, the boulder wanted it more. All the corners were cut. <laughs> there were moon doors. It's got our fingerprints all over it. <laughs> The bits where it's like perfectly formed and everything is together, Jenny did. The bits where it's like, Jen, why is there a door that just opens into the sky? I'm like, well, here's the thing. It wasn't supposed to, but it does now. <laughs> sometimes it's 10 feet wide. Sometimes it's eight feet wide. We don't know. That's me. That's totally me. I mean, when the boulder wants it more, that's also me. You know, Jenny would be like, get in there and get the boulder out. I'd be like, no, I got to respect the boulder put up a better game than I did. Game respects <laughs> game here. Sometimes the boulder has better game than us. Sometimes inanimate objects have better game than us. <laughs> oh my god, we're moving on. <laughs> moving on, please. There is a biography of, of Antoninus Pius in the Historia Augusta, which showers him with sweet, sweet praise and which has to be taken with a whole fuck ton of salt. So, Jen, will you please hit us with some of that sweet, sweet praise for Antoninus Pius in the Historia Augusta? <clears throat> In personal appearance, he was strikingly handsome. In natural talent, brilliant. In temperament, kindly. He was aristocratic in countenance and calm in nature. A singularly gifted speaker and an elegant scholar. Conspicuously thrifty, a conscientious landholder, gentle, generous, and mindful of others' rights. He possessed all these qualities, moreover, in the proper mien and without ostentation and, in fine, was praiseworthy in every way. Oh my god, Antoninus Pius is such a Mary Sue. He's such a Mary Sue. It's so funny when I, like, read stuff like that. Like, that is my natural voice, but I know it's been put on for effect. But I also know that, like, I didn't change anything to my accent there. That's just how I talk. This is what she talks like when she praises Antoninus Pius. I'm a bit, you know, a bit hot and bothered after so much praise. He's so perfect. <laughs> Look, he's the Octavia of this world, isn't he? He's just too perfect and good. Such a conscientious landholder. This is why I know he was totally banging Hadrian. Praiseworthy in every way. Oh, he had to be. 
Or whoever was writing the Historia Augusta. I'm going to give you all a pro tip. Bang your biographer. Writers will write about you and it's terrifying. (laughs) Absolutely. So according to the Historia Augusta, a lot of campaigns were waged on Antoninus Pius's behalf, but always through subordinate generals. It's likely Antoninus Pius himself never got within 50 miles of a battlefield. One of those campaigns was up in Britannia in the vicinity of Hadrian's Wall. Something happened up there. We don't know exactly what. This period in history is extremely poorly documented, but whatever happened, it must have been big because it prompted Antoninus Pius to order a mass reordering of the border up there. Pius pulled all the troops off Hadrian's Wall and relocated them 100 miles north into the wild, untamed ginger highlands. (laughs) Woohoo! And he made them build a new wall, the Antonine Wall. There are only two mentions of this event in the ancient sources. One is in Pausanias' description of Greece, which says that Antoninus Pius ran the Brigantes out of their ancestral territory because they attacked the Roman province of Garunia. So the Brigantes was Cardamondua's tribe. Remember, Jen? We talked about her in one of our Patreon episodes. We talked about her, yeah. And that checks out because that region, the Brigantes territory, was in this area. It was just south of the wall. But nobody has any idea where Garunia was. That is not a Roman province that is listed anywhere else. It appears only in this source. So the Historia Augusta chimes in to say that Antoninus Pius's lieutenant, someone named Lollius Urbicus, built a second wall of turf after defeating, quote, the Britons. There are coins from around this time with Britannia stamped on them, signifying some kind of victory somewhere in Britain. And we know that the Senate gave him honors for his victory. There was also a really unique building called Arthur's Oon by later generations that stood in view of the Antonine Wall until 1743, when a jerk landowner demolished it and used the stones to build a dam for a mill. He demolished an ancient Roman Arthur's Oon. I can't. Asshole. So Arthur's Oon was a circular building with a domed roof, kind of like a beehive, highly polished and built entirely without mortar. Carvings of various Roman insignia on the un suggest it had been built in the Roman era to commemorate a victory of some kind. And that's about all we know about why Antoninus Pius decommissioned Hadrian's Wall and ordered the Antonine Wall built. I mean, that's not a lot to go on. It's really not a lot to go on. We might have more to go on if Arthur's Oon still existed because there might be information carved on it, but it doesn't, so. No, it's not there. Yeah, because of that asshole landowner. Asshole. I mean, he really needed that dam. Fuck that dude. Fuck his dam. That's how I feel. Damn that dam. I just don't give a fuck about this dude's dam and his dam needs. So the Antonine Wall was begun in 142 AD, and it was nowhere near this statement piece that Hadrian's Wall was. The Antonine Wall stretches only about 39 miles between the mouths of two mighty rivers that empty into the sea, the Firth of Forth on the eastern coast and the Firth of Clyde on the west. It's built across Scotland's narrowest point. The Antonine Wall was built of turf and stood about 10 feet tall and 16 feet wide. Jenny, what is turf? I think it's just dirt and grass. It could be more complicated than that, but I don't think it's more complicated than that. So archaeologists believe that there was a wooden palisade on top of the wall. It had a ditch to the north for added protection, but no vallum to the south because there is no vallum except in Hadrian's Wall. Because, as I've already said, it's a canal. Right. Jen thinks it's a canal. There's no, um... There's absolutely no evidence it was. 
The Antonine Wall had 16 forts spread out along its length, with smaller, mild castles between because those forts got busy. I mean, there was a lot happening in those mats. <laughs> so much happening in the, in the vegetative mats in the barracks. Mild castles are being born all the time. So there was a road running east to west on the southern side of the Antonine Wall called the Military Way, which connected everything. When finished, there were statues and stone plaques embedded in the turf wall to commemorate the legions that built each section. These would have been brightly painted, and I've seen pictures of some of them. A lot of them are pictures of cavalry officers killing and subjugating the Celtic population. I've seen wildly different estimates about how long it took to build the Antonine Wall, 12 years on the longer side and something like eight months on the shorter side. I think it was only in action for like eight years. So probably like toward the shorter side is my guess. I don't know where I got 12 years from, but I don't think it took that long to build. The living on the Antonine Wall would have been rougher than it was on Hadrian's Wall. The forts weren't designed to house an entire cohort. Instead, Different groups of infantry and cavalry from different cohorts were housed together in what would have been incredibly diverse combinations, which is not ideal because as we saw in Hadrian's Wall, they tried to keep people from similar backgrounds together to avoid sort of like having lots of people who had lots of problems with each other living next to each other. There would have been ancestral intertribal conflicts sometimes. Yeah, I mean, and I don't know anything about what that was up there, but it's possible. Absolutely. So these different combinations included soldiers from North Africa. The general Lollius Urbicus, who oversaw the construction of the Antonine Wall, was North African. He came from Numidia in modern-day Algeria. And that is fascinating and once again goes to show that there has always been diversity in Britain. Always. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really easy to assume that everyone up there was white at all times, and that's absolutely not the case. They were not. Archaeology shows a clear North African presence there. An ancient casserole dish was found there that resembles a form of tagine, and other North African pottery has been found up there as well. Have you ever eaten food from a tagine because it's so good? Oh my god, I know what it looks like, but I can't think of what I've eaten from it. It is gorgeous, isn't it? Explain what a tagine looks like. Yeah, so it's like a clay or sometimes a ceramic kind of bowl with like a conical top on it. And it's like a it's like a casserole dish that you cook in. The food coming out of a tagine is just unreal. It's so delicious. Like when I lived in Paris, I lived in Paris for a little while near the Place de la République. And there was a market behind the apartment building I lived in. I think it was a lot of it was Algerian and like North African. And they had this one area where you could go and there were endless tagines full of different tagine dishes with like dates and apricots and couscous and olives and different kinds of meat and fish and different spices. And I remember going there and it was just like this wonderland. I was like, oh my God, how can I eat all of this at one time? Like, this is so good. I would eat there every day. It was so amazing. Do you need to order some food, Jenny? <laughs> I'm just like starving just thinking about tagine food right now. People were eating well up there. And here's the thing. There weren't just a few items that were found there either. North African items have been found at nine or ten forts along the Antonine Wall. Some historians suggest these auxiliaries from North Africa may have been from Maritania, where campaigns were fought earlier in Antoninus Pius's reign. He, or his generals, may have reassigned troops from there to the Antonine Wall to replace prior losses. Yeah, so there were definitely... 
North African troops up there at the Antonine Wall, and they were reassigned to Hadrian's Wall, I believe, after the Antonine Wall was decommissioned. But we're getting to that. We're getting there. And I think it's just, it's one of those things we talked about in our last episode. There was so much diversity at Hadrian's Wall. There were people from all areas of the empire up there. And it's just this incredible little melting pot that existed in northern England. Yeah. So what was going on at Hadrian's Wall during the time when the Antonine Wall was occupied? With most, if not all, of its forces relocated about 100 miles north, Hadrian's Wall was decommissioned. Adrian Goldsworthy tells us that the doors were taken off the Mile Castle gates and their pivot stones, their giant hinges, smashed so people could cross freely. More causeways were built through the vallum. You know, they just basically decommissioned it, smashed all the hinges in the gates, built causeways through the vallum, and allowed people to pass freely during this time through Hadrian's Wall. So I've seen some sources say that the Antonine Wall was under constant attack while it was occupied, but it's hard to find details on this. There are almost no details about the wars fought under Antoninus Pius's regime, especially in this area. It does make sense that there would have been some tension up there, though, because the Antonine Wall did cut through local tribal territories. So the Antonine Wall was manned for just eight years. When Antoninus Pius died in 161 AD, his wall was abandoned and his troops pulled back to Hadrian's Wall. The archaeological evidence points to a measured, methodical decommissioning rather than flight under violent attack. Some key improvements to Hadrian's Wall were made when the troops got back. The turf wall, the section of the wall to the west that was built in turf, was rebuilt in stone at this point, and the military way was built on the southern side of the wall like the Antonine Wall had, to make it easier for the troops to move along the wall. The fact that Hadrian's Wall was recommissioned during this time points to a clue of its purpose. If it was a big, hairy MacGuffin, as Jenny suggested, and not a giant wall to keep out gingers, then why? Why was it remanned? It's a good question. This is a great question. We don't know the answer to this. Whatever its original function was, to keep out gingers, it must have been working. I mean, yeah, maybe it was really just there to spank the gingers. That would not surprise me. (laughs) Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. past, Antoninus Pius was succeeded by Marcus Aurelius, succeeded in turn by his son, everyone's favorite king jackass of the arena, (laughs) Commodus. He's our favorite. You should join our Patreon and listen to our king jackass of the arena series. 
He does things that are so extra and next level. I'm like, wow. Cassius Dio never got over it. I just have two words for you, John, and those two words are toga bulge. (laughs) (laughs) Commodus was so terrified of like a barber cutting his hair that he burnt his beard himself rather than allow someone to give him a haircut. You should listen to that episode and find out why. Because this baffled me, but Jen explained it to me in a way where I totally got it. And I was like, yeah, maybe I'd burn my hair too. But I'm not going to explain why I came to that conclusion. I'm just going to tell you, you have to sign up and listen. It's worth it. We're talking about the conditions on Hadrian's Wall during Commodus's reign. So there is some evidence in the ancient sources about some disturbance on the wall during Commodus's reign in the early 180s AD. When tribes up north, the wild gingers... Woohoo! <laughs> Overwhelmed Hadrian's Wall and wrought violence on the Romano British provinces to the south. A high ranking general was killed in the fighting. Commodus sent a general up there to calm things down, and later coins were struck to commemorate the victory. Frustratingly, that's about all we know about this war. There's some evidence at some of the forts of a burned layer that may date to around this time, but archaeologists can't usually tell whether burn layers in general can be attributed to a specific time period or violence or accidental fire. Maybe it was an accidental fire. People don't know. Yeah, which is fair enough. My feeling is that archaeologists are a little bit reluctant to identify a certain burn layer as like, yes, this was definitely violence because there has been a lot of over-identifying of burn layers with different battles in the past. That wasn't necessarily true. It's fair enough, but they might have overcorrected. They might not have. I'm not an archaeologist. I don't know anything, really. I just listen to what they tell me. We don't even have degrees in this shit, so. So let's get back to the wild man Commodus. Commodus's reign was extremely chaotic and it deserves an actual episode, which maybe I'll do one day, probably won't. The troops in Britain mutinied on several occasions, although the sources don't say whether soldiers on Hadrian's Wall were directly involved. Commodus died in 192 AD on New Year's Eve, strangled in his bath. He was another one strangled by the guy who rubbed him in his bath. The man who rubbed him in the bath. It was actually his wrestling, like, instructor partner. Listen, that guy was definitely rubbing him in the bath. Let's be very clear. (laughs) But, like, wait, let's get to the best part. This was because of a coup orchestrated, at least partially, by his mistress, Marcia. She was like the Plotina, the Plotina of this plot. She was. Uh Uh-huh. She was involved in a murder polycule. And Commodus' successor lasted a scant few months before the Praetorian Guard murdered him as well. And this plunged Rome into another civil war. This was called the Year of the Five Emperors, in which the governors of Rome's three most powerful provinces faced off for the throne. One of them was the governor of Britain. He pulled a lot of legions throughout Britain to the final battle at Lugodunum in Gaul, Probably many of them came from Hadrian's Wall. Unfortunately, he lost. The winner was this little-known guy called Septimius Severus. And Septimius Severus took the throne in 197 AD. So Septimius Severus was half Italian and half North African. He came from a wealthy equestrian family, the Fulvii, that may have been related to Fulvia. You know Fulvia. If you don't know who Fulvia is, go back and listen to our episode on Fulvia. Yes. Original gangster of ancient Rome. 
That name, incidentally, means yellow or golden hair, but it's really probable that Severus did not have golden hair. Severus got into politics at the early age of 17 in 162 AD, the year the Antonine Wall was decommissioned. He served various political positions under Marcus Aurelius and then Commodus. When Commodus was assassinated in 192 AD, Severus, then 47 years old, was serving as governor of Pannonia Superior, a province on the Danube River. Someone named Pertinax was declared emperor, then immediately assassinated by his own Praetorian guard because... Because it was that kind of year. <laughs> they were used to Commodus's non-existent rules about Praetorian guard conduct. He just let his Praetorian guard run wild. And they did not like Pertinax's idea of instilling discipline. Yeah. It's like, just show up on time and get your shit done. Exactly. So the Praetorian guards ganked Pertinax <laughs> for having the bare minimum of discipline. And then they turned around and auctioned off the throne to the highest bidder. Jen, you remember this period in time, right? We covered this in our Praetorian guards episode. We covered this. So the highest bidder was a senator named Didius Julianus. And I mean, that name is ridiculous. Not poopy anus level ridiculous, but... <laughs> Just Didius. Didius bothers me. So Didius didn't last long. He was assassinated just in time for Septimius Severus to get there with his own army, dissolve the Praetorian Guard for being extremely naughty boys. They had been so naughty. They had been so naughty. And then he reformed the Praetorian Guard using his own trusted soldiers from his own ranks. And that's how Septimius Severus became emperor. Unlike the last four emperors, Commodus, Marcus Aurelius, Antoninus Pius, and Hadrian, Severus was expansionist-minded. He had a big old expansionist agenda. It's the first time we've seen a big, throbbing, veiny expansionist agenda in a while, really. Yeah, since Trajan back in 117. So Septimius Severus enacted a number of military reforms, waged war in Parthia and North Africa, and then decided, let's go up to Britannia just for fun. He went all the way to the Caledonian border. The year of the five emperors was a very unstable time, and Hadrian's wall was no doubt affected, although it is difficult to say how much. The wall was not at full strength when Septimius Severus visited. In the past two decades, troops had been pulled off the wall to serve in foreign wars, put down mutinies, participate in attempted coups, and deal with unrest in the wake of at least one major plague, the Antonine Plague. Septimius Severus assigned new men to the wall, increasing its force, and then traveled north to the Antonine Wall, which he recommissioned as well. He put some men up there. Septimius then built a 165-acre camp just south of the Antonine Wall and prepared for a serious invasion north into Caledonian territory, into what we might call today Scotland. But things did not go the way he expected. So here's how Cassius Dio describes it. Quote, Severus, accordingly, desiring to subjugate the whole of it, invaded Caledonia. But as he advanced through the country, he experienced countless hardships in cutting down the forests, leveling the heights, filling up the swamps, and bridging the rivers. But he fought no battle and beheld no enemy in battle array. The enemy purposely put sheep and cattle in front of the soldiers for them to seize, in order that they might be lured on still further until they were worn out. For in fact, the water caused great suffering to the Romans, and when they became scattered, they would be attacked. Then, unable to walk, 
they would be slain by their own men in order to avoid capture, so that a full 50,000 died. But Severus did not desist until he approached the extremity of the island. Here he observed most accurately the variation of the sun's motion and the length of days and nights in summer and winter, respectively. Having thus been conveyed through practically the whole of the hostile country, for he actually was conveyed in a covered litter most of the way, on account of his infirmity, he returned to the friendly portion after he had forced the Britons to come to terms on the condition that they should abandon a large part of their territory. Yeah, so let's pause and break this down. Can we just break this down a little bit? Yeah, so let's pause and break this down for a second. So Septimius Severus goes up to Caledonia, which is what the Romans called Scotland, and tries to subjugate it. But they're like, hey, have a sheep drink the shitty water. Have a sheep drink the shitty water. The tribes up there refused to meet him in open combat and just let him sort of flail around until they were killing each other so that they could avoid capture because they were so weak from hunger and thirst. I don't know where they were that the water was bad because the water in Scotland, it is so good. I'm actually drinking Highland Spring water at the moment. Maybe people living up there poisoned the water. Ooh, maybe they did. I mean, also, this was the ancient world, so water quality was a little bit different than it is today. True. So I would say, like, it's a little bit of a mystery what this thing is about the water, but we do know that this is kind of like what Mark Antony encountered in Parthia. Like, he didn't get a decisive big set-piece battle. What he got was wandering around looking for an enemy to fight while his troops couldn't find food it was really difficult terrain his supply chain had trouble keeping up with him and they just didn't have enough to eat and they just got weaker and weaker depending on where he was where septemius Severus was it might have been very brackish water which might have been the problem brackish is where the salt water and fresh water meet jen's still on the water i really am because scottish water is delicious i'm sorry i believe you But in addition, they were luring them further deeper into, like, the territory by putting a sheep or two out for them to, like, well, obviously more than a sheep, it's a whole freaking army. But, you know, they were putting sheep out for them to, like, come closer so that they could just, like, lure them into a bad area, I guess. Yeah, like, lure them, you know, deeper into territory where they would not be able to get food or water or basic necessities. The thing is, though, like the way that Cassius Dio depicts this is it's just completely ineffectual. But I wouldn't say that that is actually the case. Like, I do think that Septimius Severus did a lot of damage up here. And we're going to talk about why. So, Jenny, incidentally, at some point just after this invasion, Severus's wife, Julia Domna, was having a conversation with the wife of an important Caledonian chieftain. Remember, Julia Domna's husband had just finished attempting to subjugate this woman's people with at least some middling success. Middling success? I mean, this is iffy, but we're going to talk about some stuff that indicates, you know, that Severus did cause some harm up there. Exactly. So Julia Domna took this opportunity to make a terrible joke about how promiscuous Caledonian women were. Because Julia Domina was a real piece of work. Right, I'm just like, here's a great time to slut shame somebody. Yeah, you've subjugated their people. You've got the wife of this prominent chieftain who you should be polite to because like, I don't know, maybe you're trying to make a peace. Oh my God, Julia Domina needs to shut her fucking pie hole. She really does. So the wife of the Caledonian chieftain was like, I have a mic drop for you. And she said, quote, 
We fulfill the demands of nature in a much better way than you Roman women do, for we consort openly with the best men, whereas you let yourselves be debauched in secret by the vilest. I mean, Julia Domina, what is she saying about your husband? Saying he's fucking vilest. She's like, ew, you let that guy touch you? What is she saying about your sons, Julia Domina? I wouldn't let them touch me with a fucking barge pole is what she's saying. I love her. She is so brilliant. It took Septimius Severus about two years to get any concessions from the Caledonians. Two years of grueling war and extreme casualties on the Roman side where they just sort of flailed around up there and didn't really accomplish anything. But he must have caused some damage to the local Celts as well. Or at least they just wanted to get this giant Roman army out the fuck out of their territory. Because finally, according to the ancient sources, which are biased, they asked for peace, which Severus granted, as long as, you know, the Celts let him have the central lowlands territories. So the Celts wound up conceding some territory to Severus, and this was not a small concession because the lowlands territories would have been, like, more fertile ground, from what I understand. Sure, and easy to transport stuff to and from. Yeah, it also would have been a foothold into the highlands, so that was not a small concession. So that's why I think that Severus was doing enough damage up there that they were willing to pay a certain amount to get him the fuck out. And in a certain amount of desperation, because the lowlands territories were valuable territory, both strategically and agriculturally. So interestingly, there have been some really large hordes of silver coins found in this area of Scotland dating from around this time. Historians believe that these may have been payments from Severus to local tribes, essentially bribing them to stop making war with him. Interesting. Right. But here's the thing. You can't eat money. Shortly after all of this happened, the Caledonians revolted against Rome again, joined by another local tribe or possibly a confederation of tribes called the Maete. It's likely that the Caledonians were desperate and starving. Their resources stretched thin by fighting off Rome and conceding all of this arable land in this shit treaty. Anyway, this time Severus took it personally. He prepared for another large-scale war in Caledonia, telling his soldiers to kill them all and leave the land completely depopulated. This is a quote from Cassius Dio, quote, Let no one escape sheer destruction. He's really got it out for the redheads. No one our hands, not even the babe in the womb of the mother. If he be male, let it nevertheless not escape sheer destruction. How do you know? Like, you can't do an ultrasound at this point in time. Right, how do you know that the babe in the womb is male? So just kill everybody. So Severus fully intended to unleash the full destructive might of the Roman army on the Caledonians to make sure that they never rebelled again. Yeah, because that went really well last time. I know. He did so well with his bribes and payments to get them to, like, leave his army alone and sue for peace. Like, uh, Severus. Us gingers and other Highland people do not take this well. I know, seriously. But Severus was so sick at this point that he had to be carried around in a litter, and the rough living on campaign was too much for his fragile state of health. Severus died in 211 at the city of York. Septimius Severus was trying to enact this genocide, which he was, like, insisting on accompanying his army for, but he was carried in a litter the whole time. All throughout the Scottish Highlands. Yeah, he wanted to have a front seat for this genocide, Jenny, in a litter. That's what was happening up there. Can you imagine the people who were stuck doing that? Like, oh my God. Severus died in 211 in the city of York. His two sons, Geta and Caracalla, were with him when he died. 
He told them on his deathbed, and this is a quote from Cassius Dio, be harmonious, enrich the soldiers, and scorn all other men. <laughs> what did that mean? Scorn all other men? What does that mean? What it means is you don't have to give a fuck about anyone except your army. We live in a military dictatorship, bitches. That's what it means. Ooh, I didn't get that. You don't have to care about your Senate. You don't have to care about your aristocratic class. You don't have to care about the common man. You only have to care about the military. That's what he's telling his sons. Thank you for clarifying that. Jen has now hit the point where she's had a little wine. The wine's doing the talking from here on out. From here on out. Jen's wine has entered the chat. <laughs> Septimius Severus's two sons, Geta and Caracalla, collectively known as the walking shit show, took over. And like I said, this was an absolute fucking shit show. Caracalla assassinated Geta and then got himself assassinated by his own Praetorian guard. And we tell that story in more detail in Child Emperor's Sharks in the Womb. So the next two emperors, Elagabalus and then Alexander Severus, were both murdered by their own troops. And we talk about them both in our Child Emperor's series as well. So... Go listen to that if you're into it. So after Alexander Severus's death in 235 AD, Rome was plunged into a 49-year period of instability called the Crisis of the 3rd Century, from which it never really recovered. During this time, the empire was racked by violent civil war, roving bands of marauders wreaking havoc on communities, climate change causing crop and water shortages, economic collapse, and profound political dysfunction. So... We're well into the mid to late 200s AD now, and there is almost no documentation about what life was like on Rome's most isolated northern frontier, that would be Hadrian's Wall, but here's what the archaeological evidence has to tell us. Not long after the Septimius Severus years, the early 200s AD, a large number of the wall's smaller turrets, primarily in the central section, were closed up and their gates blocked off. Later, they were demolished and not rebuilt. In the years afterward, the northern gateways of the many mile castles were also walled up, with only a small doorway built into the larger blocked off gate, and any causeways across the ditch were also removed or blocked off. And this indicates that while smaller groups still needed access to the north side of the wall, Probably for maintenance, there were no longer large groups of men and horses going north to perform military operations. If the wall had been functioning as a base from which to control the highlands, it stopped being used that way. If trade traffic was being controlled through the wall, that had probably slowed to a trickle too, if it didn't stop altogether. In the early years of Hadrian's Wall, the soldiers received regular pay, and even the rank and file lived fairly comfortably by the standards of the time. During the crisis of the 3rd century, however, the value of Roman currency tanked, so soldiers had much less to spend than before. The thriving Vikis, the merchant communities that clustered around each fort since its inception, shrank and eventually vanished Probably as early as 280 AD, the soldiers just didn't have the money to support them anymore and luxury goods, not to mention everyday necessities, became much more difficult to procure. People owned less. There's a dramatic drop in the number of artifacts found in the forts during this time. Even items such as amphorae of olive oil, which would have been a very basic imported staple, disappeared from the archaeological record. In the past, the legions on the wall were likely to be volunteers. However, 
During and after the crisis of the third century, this changed. Sometime around the late 200s, Emperor Diocletian implemented a policy where once a year, Roman citizens were conscripted into the army to serve a 25-year term. This would have been very different from the conscriptions of the late Republic, where people were conscripted for short-term service. And if your father happened to be a soldier, you had to serve in the army. It was mandatory. People got so desperate to avoid military service that they would sometimes cut off their thumbs so they couldn't hold a sword. The state countered by accepting two men without thumbs to serve in the place of one man with uninjured hands. And that is what we wrote about in our cold open. Yeah, we found this so horrifying that people had to make that choice. Yeah, and we were thinking about, you know, what would one individual's choice look like? And that's what we came up with. We're dark. (laughs) In order to make sure his greatly expanded army stayed well-fed, Diocletian also levied a food tax on all provinces based on how much cultivated land was in each province. He conducted a very thorough empire-wide census for this purpose. But the provinces had been heavily depopulated during the crisis of the third century, you know, with all the plague and the marauding and the violence and the war and all of that. And the litter carrying. (laughs) And the litter carrying and the climate change and the genocide. No wonder it's been depopulated. So Diocletian also decreed that no farmers were ever allowed to leave the land in which they'd been registered by his census. You could never leave. You could not move. Actually would make our guy who cut off his thumbs like he would be stuck there. This had the effect of chaining tenant farmers and all of their descendants to the landlord estates on which they farmed. And this was the beginning of serfdom as a system. This right here. Which is fascinating. It started right there in ancient Rome. Ancient Rome has a history of just taking its dysfunction and blowing it outward down through the millennia to the present day. Fucking ancient Rome. So at the beginning, there was a clear line between the soldiers and local Celtic tribes. But as the years went on at Hadrian's Wall, those differences started to blur. Men in the Roman army began to adopt the gear and clothing traditionally worn and used by local tribesmen, including long sleeve tunics or trousers, because it was cold up there, oval rather than square shields, and spears and javelins rather than the traditional Roman pilum. The recognizable lorica segmentata, the banded armor worn by Roman soldiers, was replaced by Celtic chainmail. Even the distinctive gladius, the most recognizable symbol of the Roman army, was replaced by the long spatha, a sword originally used by Germanic auxiliaries and later adopted into the Roman cavalry and eventually the infantry. The spatha sword, by the way, was a precursor to both the Viking longsword and the straight, double-edged, cross-hilted swords associated with European knights in the Middle Ages. Yet another thing laid down during this time in Roman Britain that was carried forward and became a staple of medieval culture. Wow, it is so fascinating. So by the 300s AD, there's clear evidence of a civilian presence inside the forts themselves along Hadrian's Wall including the remains of civilian markets. The small number of civilians left in these communities when the Vikis dried up had moved inside the forts, probably for protection. Still, even as the standard of living dropped for the lower-ranking soldiers, officers still clung to what luxuries and signs of status they could. At South Shields Fort, a new house was built for the commander in the early 300s. It had all the trappings of an expensive Roman villa built around a gracious open courtyard ideal for balmy Mediterranean summers, but much less practical for northern English winters. Yeah, not ideal. 
suboptimal. There are also clear signs that the Army's legendary engineering skills were starting to degrade. At forts all along the wall, we see buildings and supporting walls collapsing and being repaired with basic earth and timber rather than stone, using inferior techniques. Roman forts were generally all built based on the standard plan, with regulation buildings constructed in the same way and placed along a neatly laid out grid. But as those neatly regimented buildings gradually collapsed, they were replaced in a haphazard fashion that departed from Roman plans. Granaries, in particular, were allowed to collapse, not repaired, and sometimes replaced with different types of buildings entirely, a sign that there were far fewer people living here now, and they needed less space to store food. Over time, those with the expertise to keep the elaborate Roman baths in good repair died out, and the legendary Roman baths fell into disrepair. What we get here is a picture of genteel decay and a long slide into poverty rather than major upheaval. It's a false picture. And this isn't 100% corroborated by historians. This is our theory, but oh man, are we going to tell you all about our theory. People living in the 200s AD might have thought things could not possibly get worse after the crisis of the 3rd century. Oh, wait for the 300s, kids. It got worse. In fact, we might go out on a limb here and nominate the 300s AD as the worst century ever in Roman Britain including on Hadrian's Wall, that might be an extreme comment, but in two weeks, we're going to tell you all about that and let you judge for yourselves. So that's it for this week. We'll be back in two weeks to explain to you why the 300s might have been the worst possible time to be living in Roman Britain. Maybe. In the meantime, you can follow us on social at Ancient Histfan on Twitter or Ancient History Fangirl on Facebook and Instagram. And check out our Patreon at Patreon slash Ancient History Fangirl. We've got ad-free episodes, and extra bonus content like the story of Cardamandua, the Anti-Boudica, fun conversations between us and other podcasters, mostly Liv from Let's Talk About Miss Baby, but also other podcasters, and all kinds of great stuff. You should check it out. And we have some Patreon members to thank this week. Daryl Hoppersberger. And Meaty Thwack. What a great name. It's the best name ever. Meaty Thwack. I'm dying. Thank you so much for joining our Patreon and for supporting us. And to all of our other patrons out there, we couldn't do this podcast without you. Thank you so much. And we will see you in two weeks. 